Welcome to the Redeemer Lincoln Square podcast. Our church began in April of 2017 and is located just down the street from Lincoln Center in the Lincoln Square neighborhood of Manhattan. Our channel will primarily feature sermons from our Sunday worship service, as well as encouraging stories and conversations with members of our LSQ church family. We hope you'll subscribe as a way to stay connected during this season of uncertainty and social distancing. Today's scripture reading is from Genesis 3, verses 11 through 21. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Amen. Good morning, everybody. My name is Bruce O'Neill, and I'm one of the pastors here at LSQ. Do you know what um, stand-up comedians and preachers have in common? They both operate by the same principle, that anything a friend says or does, quite frankly, it doesn't even have to be a friend, anything anyone says or does can be an illustration. (laughs) This past week, I was in a group setting and listening uh, to people tell stories about siblings and how many rooms people had to share with their brother or sister and and all of that. But this, this one story stuck out that I thought you ought to know about. And the story goes that this older sister has two younger brothers. They shared a room, but there was a wall of funk smell that these boys created that the sister felt like she couldn't go any further than where that wall was. It was invisible, but easily detectable by the nose. Have you ever heard somebody say to you, life is full of disappointments. It's an old saying that in life, because we, if we live it long enough and our lives are complicated enough, some of the things that we hoped would work out don't work out, and we're disappointed by them. So do you, do you have a working theory for the walls of funk in your life? 
those disappointments that come your way, large or small, do you have a working theory that explains and fits your experience? Because if you don't, if you don't have a working theory, you're going to be doubly in pain. You're going to suffer twice. You're going to suffer first because of the disappointment itself, but you're also going to suffer because you're going to be surprised that the disappointment is in your life. And so all of us need to have a working theory about disappointments. And so our text this morning does that for us. It helps us explain our experience and it fits our experience. You see, I drew the the distinction because there are a lot of theories that explain what we're experiencing, but they don't fit. That is, they they don't ultimately solve or resolve what we experience. For instance, in the 18th century, there was a working theory of what's wrong with humanity called the Enlightenment. It was replaced by uh, secularism of the 20th century and postmodernism in the 21st century, but just know that there was a movement like what we're experiencing back in the 18th century, and a lot of the constitutional and writings of our founding fathers were written in that light. And one of the things that the Enlightenment said was that what's wrong with man is that he doesn't have enough education, that, that we are just too ignorant. That if we provide education, and, and you see what I mean, it does explain the average education in the United States when the United States was founded was quite low. Most people didn't go to school. There weren't a lot of public schools uh, for people to go to. There wasn't a lot of literacy in the United States. And you can see it explained the experience. A lot of our trouble was because people just weren't educated. Well, we've spent now more than 230 years educating our populace, and yet we still have disappointment. Not just little things, but large things. Another thing the Enlightenment said is that we need to create opportunities. One of the reasons that people can't get ahead is they just don't have enough opportunities. And though it does explain our experience, we don't have a lot of opportunity, particularly in some of our more impoverished and poor areas. I get that. But even when we have given opportunity, it hasn't kept us from being disappointed in those opportunities. So I think that's important for us to understand that we need a work in theory that doesn't simply explain our problems, but also fits in how they're, they're going to even be addressed and resolved. Our text gives us a working theory. And because it gives us a working theory, we need to ask those two questions. Does it explain and ultimately does it fit with our experience that we're seeing? But I want to give you one more thing that I think this text gives us beyond an explanation and a fit. I think it also gives us a hope that this isn't the way it's always going to be. We were told last week that humanity doesn't trust God. And so we are always insecure because we can't trust. In fact, we learned last week because humanity can't trust God, we end up putting our trust in other things. And because we put our trust in other things, we're always disappointed because those things are not reliable. They don't come through for us. They fail us. And we also learned that we spend lots and lots of time trying desperately to hide our shame 
that we put our trust in things that have failed us. But we want a happily ever after. Every kid grows up on those stories that have once upon a time at the beginning and then at the end, it is, it, they lived happily ever after, and we want that story. Is there a story that has truth to it that ultimately ends with a happily ever after. Here in chapter 3, we see the beginning of the end of that story that ends with a happily ever after. And we'll fast forward in a moment and see that happily ever after. But we have to do the digging first before we can get there. So let's take a look at what this text tells us and at the same time see if it explains and fits our experience. So I, I divide it up in three parts. A curse is fallen. A child is given and a garment is worn. And so, kind of follow along. A curse has fallen. As a result of the first humans and what they did, a curse has fallen. A curse is how life is changed by something that we do. I had a friend in my last ministry. He, he came forward and confessed that he had been abusing his own uh, daughter and two of his uh, nieces. And he went to court and confessed, and they sent him uh, to prison. And when he got out of prison, he thought that he could pick up his life exactly where he had left it off. But while he was in prison, his wife divorced him. The court had ordered that he never could be around children, including his own children. And yet he constantly tried to get that life back. What he failed to understand is that what he had done had so radically changed him that he could not go back to that life. You see, that's a curse. Is that something that we do is so profound, it alters who we are and how we live. And that's what happens here in chapter 3. Just to come across this curse, it's a three-part curse. First, it comes to the serpent, a snake, and it says in verse 14, so the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Now, I could ask and embarrass how many people love snakes, and there are always two or three in the room. But quite frankly, if I released a snake in the room, and it cannot even be poisonous. And I can tell you, we would see guys go to the highest level of their voice box to let us know that they don't like snakes either. Although, when I was about eight or nine years old, I caught a black racer in the garden, and I brought it in to show my mom. But the way I decided to show my mom was just to let it go. I had never heard my mom scream before, but she did until I picked up that snake and got it outside. Now, if you know, black racer is not dangerous, but where does that fear come from? We are afraid of snakes. Our text tells us the reason we're afraid of snakes is because of this text, where it says above all livestock and wild animals, they are cursed. You're going to crawl on your belly, which presumes that when Adam and Eve first met the snake, the snake was not on its belly, and that would have been quite a sight to see. But we see that they are feared. 
But it doesn't just say that snakes are feared and what the snake represents, which is Satan. But also, it's frustrated. That is, not the snake, but what the snake points to, which is Satan actually seeks on earth to frustrate God's plan of redemption. And he's always frustrated because every time he tries to do that, he fails. Because he's coming up against someone who is more powerful and more determined to love us and save us from ourselves. And that's why he's frustrated in that eating of the dust. Don't think of it simply as that because the snake is on the belly, it eats a lot of dirt. That, that's a way of saying it will be frustrated. And you know that as we think about the cross and, and how Satan thought he had a victory there. Finally, the leader of this movement is finally going to die. But in the end, the death is what saves us. What an incredible picture of one being frustrated in his attempt to end. But in the end, it was the way of victory. But that's not all it says. In verse 15, he says, I'm going to put an enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. Verse 15. So for the very first time, humanity now has what? An enemy. In the garden before this, there was no enemy. Man walked with God in the cool of the day and the dawn of time. And now there's an enemy in the garden. And the enemy will follow them out of the garden. But not only has humanity got an enemy, but now humanity is part of a broken family. Look at verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe, and with painful labor you will give birth to children. Now, if the Bible never said this, we would not have an explanation of why there is so much pain associated with children. Not just simply in the carrying of children, not simply in the birthing of children, but in general, children often are the source of some of our greatest sadness, greatest happiness. Don't get me wrong. I've got uh, seven grandchildren and one on the way, happy for them. But they also become a part and parcel to some of our greatest sorrows. How do we know that? Have you ever heard the phrase that a mother is only as happy as her saddest child. This is where it comes from. A mother is only as happy as the saddest child. So in one sense, it's not just simply, hey, guys, the curse here is that not only is there going to be pain associated with the birthing of children, but also children in general in its totality And we'll see that immediately next week in chapter 4. But there's also a bit more than that. It's not just in having them, but in not having them. You see, there's there's not just a pain about having children. There's pain in not having them as well. And, And the Bible is full of women who couldn't have children. And the pain that was associated with it. But it goes on, doesn't it? In verse 16, your desire will be for your husband. Not, not only is there a brokenness in having or not having children, but there's also a brokenness even in the, the other relationship in the garden with the husband, which means that there's pain in relationships. And you know that's true. Sometimes, well, not sometimes, many times, the greatest pains that we have relationally 
have to do with the people that are closest to us. That is, if you're a stranger and you say something on the street to me that's derogatory about my mother, it doesn't hurt me like it does if you're my friend. You know that's true. Where does that come from? Right here. That relationally, we're broken. And our relationships are broken. Not always, but when they are, they can be traced to right here. Okay, so humanity now has an enemy. Humanity is part of a broken family, but it is also part of a broken world. Verses 17 through 19 shows us the extent at which the fall goes, extent of which our disappointments go. First, the world. Cursed is the ground, verse 17, because of you. He's not just simply saying that it's hard uh, for, for us to garden. He's saying that work in general, it doesn't matter whether you're on Wall Street. It doesn't matter whether you're in the schools. It doesn't matter what your profession is. It doesn't matter whether you're at home raising your children. Work is hard because the world itself has been broken by what our first parents did and what we continue to do now. But not only is the world cursed, but the work itself is cursed. Verse 17, though through painful toil will you eat. Now, the Greeks got it wrong. The Greeks thought this as well, that work was tough. But their explanation, their theory of how it all works said that work itself is not cursed. It's that work is a curse. Do you all remember Pandora's box that the Greeks came up with and what comes out of Pandora's box when it's finally open? Yes, there's death and pestilence and famine, but one of the things that come out that nobody remembers is work. Because the Greeks' view of work is you, those people who do it, do it because it's the only way to live. And it's, if you can afford it, if you can make it, be a philosopher because that's at the top. You don't have to work. That's kind of the thinking. At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after our Sunday worship service. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastors and other members of our church community. If you have questions that you'd like to process, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us for our virtual worship service on YouTube every Sunday at 1030 a.m. Eastern. You can find our YouTube channel at lincolnsquare.redeemer.com slash YouTube. So not only is the world broken, work is broken, but humanity itself is broken. Verse 19, until you return to the ground. You see, death has now entered the world and man has an end to himself. You see, not only is Satan an enemy, but we get a second enemy as we leave the garden. Death itself. Death is not your friend. It's not a circle of life. It's not a place where everybody goes and and we all live happily ever. Death is what takes us out of this world. It is our enemy. It's why C.S. Lewis, when C.S. Lewis read 
chapter 3, and he wanted to put it in his Narnia tales. He put this phrase in there to describe chapter 3. Narnia was always winter, but never Christmas. And that's the way he described the curse. And so not only has a curse fallen, but right there in the midst of the curse, right there in the middle of our chapter, there's a glimmer of hope. God is going to lift the curse through a child. Do you see that? Verse 15, and I will put an enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. That word offspring is a singular word that's often translated seed or child. And because it's masculine, the idea is that there's going to be, that's why you see he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. He's saying that there's going to be a son. This is way back in the beginning. Long before anybody talked about uh, Jesus and the Messiah, there was already a verse embedded in Scripture that a son was coming and that he was going to take everything that is broken and fix it. What Tolkien would call everything that is sad come untrue. Right here, he embedded it so we don't lose hope in the midst of this theory about life. Eve's name means the giver of life. And so when she has a child, her first child is a a boy named Cain, which she then declares to everyone who will listen, and I have no idea who that would be, but at least to her husband, I have a man. The problem is that's not the best translation of what she says. What she actually says is, I got him. Some translations will say it this way, I have the man. Because Hebrew has no articles, there's not a definite article that is there because Hebrew language doesn't have that. And so instead, the translators were left to translate here, is it just a man? That would be like, duh. But no, she is saying right after the promise in 3.15 that a son is coming, that's who I'm referring to. Cain is the one. Next week, Pastor Michael will show us, spoiler alert, he's not the man. But every generation and every mother from Eve on thought her son would be the Son. And that's one of the themes of the Bible that you can trace from Genesis 3 all the way through until Jesus shows up that every generation gets a Son that everybody thinks is the Son that turns out to be only a pointer to the Son that does show up, which is why Mary says when, when she finds out that she's going to give birth to the Son, she said, blessed about Mary above all all other women because she's going to bring forth the Messiah. And it says that she contemplated all these things in her heart. So what's that son going to do? Verse 15, he's going to crush the head of the serpent, but the serpent, that is Satan, is going to strike his heel. This is Bible speak To say that he's going to end the curse, he's going to end all of our disappointments, large and small, but how? This is what turns everything upside down. Unexpected, the way in which he's going to end all disappointments, the way he's going to end the curse is for him to die in shame 
in our place. You see, the reason that's upside down is that every ruler in the world asks the people to die for him, to lift the curse. Only the Bible talks about a king who says, I will die for the people to lift the curse. That's amazing. And it's so counterintuitive for us to think that this one son that's going to be the son is going to come and he's going to take all of the shame of humanity, those things that I talked about, those, those curses, the brokenness, and empty them on himself in our place and wear that shame to death. We know that because that's the way Paul describes this promise. When Paul describes this promise in 2 Corinthians, a letter to the Corinthians, in chapter 5, verse 21, he says this, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, he had done nothing wrong, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In order for us to become right with God again, to, to reverse the curse, he who knew no sin, and here's the key phrase, became sin. It doesn't say he took all of our sins and he dropped them at the foot of the cross and as he bled, it covered them. It said he who knew no sin became sin for us. And so whatever label you have been labeling yourself with, child molester, murderer, adulterer, thief, liar, whatever you have been self-identifying with, Jesus took that identity on, on the cross for you so that you no longer have to call yourself that shame. He took that shame for us. Theologians call this an imputation, which simply means that what was mine is credited to him as if he had done it. And because theologian says that this verse not only says there's a, an imputation that way, but there's an imputation this way, that his innocence, his without sin, is given to us as if we had never sinned. So we stand before God, not crying out for mercy, but for justice. Because God will never, ever ask two payments for the same sin. No matter what you have done. All right, lastly. And because I can't see that clock there again, we're good. A garment is worn. I love this part. This verse is so beautiful that we miss it all the time. This verse gives the complete picture, verse 21, of the entire story of the Bible. That is, we start out way back in chapter 2, verse 25, and the way that Adam and Eve are described, their nature, their condition, their state before God, is that they are naked and they felt no shame. They had done nothing wrong before God. They were in perfect harmony and relationship with him. In fact, it says in the cool of the day, they walked with him. Can you imagine God is waiting in the garden for Adam and Eve to show up to talk about life? 
The closest you and I ever get is our devotions. The closest you and I ever get is sitting down quietly alone and reading the Bible and talking to him in our prayers. But Adam had something much closer to the very face of God every morning. And the way that that's described is they were completely vulnerable. They could be fully known by God. All of their hang-ups, all the, what is that thing you created, God? It looks like a hippopotamus. I don't know what else to name it. And God could explain, okay, that sounds pretty good. Can you imagine being fully known and fully loved? The reason we can't is because we never have been. Not by another human being, including spouses and parents. Parents walk around and say, I know you better than anyone. And it's true. They know you better than anyone, but that's still not knowing you, is it? In in fact, our text shows us that we don't even know ourselves. So the very first thing that we learn is that they were naked and they felt no shame. But the next section where our chapter picks up, verse 11, we see a change because something has changed. What they had done, their guilt had changed who they were, their shame, so that the phrase should be not naked and felt no shame, but now they were naked and they felt shame because something had radically changed about them. They stopped being innocent and they became guilty. They stopped being righteous and they became sinners, just like us. And so this explains their attempts to cover The first covering, we don't have it in ours, but Pastor Michael talked about it last week. What did they do? They got behind a tree, and God says, where are you? It's not because God needed new information. He just needed Adam to recognize that he was hiding, because that's a covering. He was naked, and he felt shame, and so the way he dealt with that is, I'm not going to let God look upon my nakedness. I'm going to hide behind this tree. The next thing is that, man, I don't think we should look at each other. And the the reason that is so profound, do you all remember what Adam said to Eve when he saw her for the very first time? It's the most poetical part of this whole uh, Bible. We, We quote it often at weddings. You are bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. That's poetry. He's seeing her, that American version of, wow, she, I get her? Now, she might be saying, I get him. We don't know. It wasn't recorded. What we have is his overwhelming thought of her beauty. Then we hear them sewing fig leaves together to hide their nakedness from each other. But if that's not enough, when God says, who told you you were naked? Adam says, you know that woman that I said, wow, it was her. See how far we've come in a short amount of time? But not only that, when he goes to the woman, the woman says, hey, now, it's that serpent. But do you hear what both of them did? Both of them said this, God, you put them here. You put them in the garden, so it's your fault. That's just another way to hide, is to say it's not my fault. All this shame and guilt, all this change of condition, it's not my fault. It's her fault. It's his fault. It's your fault. Do you see all that hiding? So what do we need? What were those failed attempts to do? To cover their shame. We need someone to cover our shame. 
Look at verse 21 again. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. At the end of the Bible, the end of the story, as we're wrapping up, I'll give you the happily ever after. Chapter 19 is a picture of the wedding feast where the bride of Christ, all of us, get to go to a party and a wedding that Christ is married to us. And because we don't have clothes of our own that is worthy of the party, we brought our bathing suits to a wedding. And God said, no, that is not going to do for my son. Instead, I'm going to give you a wedding dress. And I know, guys, that makes you incredibly uncomfortable to know that your future is a dress. Get over it. But that's exactly what happens. Then points to this. Verse 7 and 8 of, of, of Revelation chapter 19. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. How? Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. The closest you and I get here on earth is when we attend a wedding, there is somebody that puts on a dress that typically the family has paid for, that she puts on and wears down the aisle. That is the closest we're going to get to this pointer. That she wears a dress that someone else has bought for her to wear. And I can tell you, I have done over 200 weddings. I have never seen an ugly bride. Not one time. Why? Because she's wearing a dress. Can you imagine Jesus in heaven? You're going to make me marry them? No, 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 no. There is no ugly bride there either. Where are you today? Are you naked and ashamed? Well, maybe you're naked and ashamed because the way in which you describe yourself is by what you have done. Or maybe it's what has been done to you. Quite frankly, that can be just as devastating as what we have done. And you so much want that lifted. You want that covered. I want to invite you in a little while after communion, after uh, Graham comes up here and does our final uh, benediction, we are going to give you an opportunity to pray. We've put these signs in the back so you can gather with leaders of our church, both men and women, so that you can say, I want that covering. I can guarantee you that they can tell you about that garment and how it's given. So I invite you to take advantage of that. Don't let today go by. Nobody's in a hurry. Brancha is still going to be there. There's nothing more important than settling this issue. Are you naked and ashamed? Or are you covered? Well, maybe you're covered, but you're still struggling. They're willing to pray for that too. Because we were meant to live as clothed and unashamed. Let's take a moment and pray. Father, we thank you that you are so beautiful, that you have woven into this beautiful story with lots of tragedy, lots of disappointment, lots of brokenness, but hope. 
that we too can put on the garment and have our guilt and shame completely covered by Christ. And I pray in this room, there's got to be people who are struggling with that. They barely made it into this room having to get past all the police and all the, all the runners just to get in the room and find out that there actually is an end to their shame. And I pray that we take advantage of that, all of us today, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to our church podcast. We pray that it can serve as a resource for you as you continue processing aspects of Christianity and growing in your faith. We hope you'll subscribe to our channel if you haven't already. And we invite you to check out our website to learn more about our church and how to get connected to our family. Just visit lincolnsquare.redeemer.com.